Hello, Jason DeRossa here. Welcome to another episode of The Screen Show, a special RN summer edition of Curated Highlights. Coming up in just a moment, one of the most moving interviews I did last year, it was with the director of the Up series, Michael Apted, talking about mortality, uh, the mortality that's starting to loom for various people in the series, as well as his own mortality. He joined me uh, as the last instalment, 63 Up, launched. We'll also revisit my interview in Paris with Juliette Binoche about her role in Claire Denis' Let the Sunshine In. And Lauren Carroll Harris takes us to the far north for her TV segment today. But let's start with 63 Up. So is this a tough time for cabbies at the moment? Uber and all these other companies trying to sort of take a piece of the cake they're coming in and they're getting licenses willy-nilly. Is there a war going on between the, the cabbies and Uber? What they've done to the cab trade with 250-year-old history, I cannot stress enough. So all the cabbies, 4,000 of us, got our placards. We marched through Downing Street on a uh, demonstration. And uh, I, for one, will be there again, beating my drum for the black taxi trade. It's a series that many of us have grown up with. The 7-Up group of films are uh, something of a unique experiment. They began back in 1964, inspired by the Jesuit maxim, give me a child until they are seven and I will give you the man or the woman. And so it is that over the ensuing years, every seven years, my next guest, filmmaker Michael Apted, has been returning to the same group of people to explore how life has been unfolding. In the interim, there have been weddings, there have been births, some people have pulled out, and more recently, some people have died. Well, joining me to talk about the latest instalment, 63 Up, which is uh, currently available to watch on SBS On Demand, is Michael Apted. Michael, welcome to The Screen Show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Let's take this uh, in, initial inspiration for the series. Give me a child until he is seven and I, and I will give you uh, the man or the woman. How do you think that's gone in the end? I mean, initially that was perhaps um, uh, taken to mean to mean something about the class system in the UK. Do you think class has emerged as one of the key uh, elements of people's lives? Absolutely, in Great Britain, yeah. It's very interesting, slightly off the question, but there are only three shows, it's been copied all over the world, but only three shows that ever worked. The British one, which was the first one, the Russian one, and the, and the South African one. And I reckon the reason only three have, have worked, no one else has ever pulled it off, is because underneath the show is a, a profound truth about the country. And in Great Britain, class system has been with us since the beginning of time, since the medieval times or whatever, and it's sort of changing reasonably during the 20, 21st century, 20th century and whatever, but it's still there and it's still the kind of touchstone of it all. What strikes me with this latest instalment, though, is that the class doesn't seem to factor in too much. And correct me if you if I'm wrong or if you have a different opinion. By all means, say say so. But it strikes me that class hasn't factored in too much with people's level of happiness. Well, I mean, maybe it's more to do with opportunity than happiness. Now, you might say opportunity and happiness is the same thing, which of course I don't agree with you on that. 
that um, I think class is separate from happiness. Happiness can be a kind of religious thing or, or a relationship thing or whatever. But class is about a culture, and I think class is what has was in fact hurting Great Britain and is is now easing off somewhat and all the country is all the better for it. But I don't think you can equate happiness with um, class. Yes, well, I think it emerges quite strongly that um, they are quite separate things. I mean, this is, this is now a series which is, we're at age 63, and issues of mortality are starting to loom very large. I mean, we have one death and one, and one illness, do you have an agreement with the participants in this series that if something happens in the in the seven years between instalments, something like a wedding, but also as as has happened with this latest instalment, a death, that they contact you and that you sort of parachute in and and take footage and you know basically depict that moment? No. If I started making you know the lives of each of them as they happen, then I'd have a you know, a 64-hour program and no one would ever be able to see it. So you've got to draw the line somewhere. I mean, I can use some footage or some library footage if someone dies or has something exciting happen during the seven years. But I certainly never intended to go out more than every seventh year. I wasn't going to go out and do it, you know, hour by hour, month by month, year by year. Mm. Once I opened that particular can of worms, as it were, then there's nowhere to stop. I mean, you know, if your mother dies, you have to go out and film it and all this sort of stuff if you're in the 7-Up thing. So it always had to have that kind of notion that it was it, it, it was focused, and it was focused on that every seventh year, because then you can compare how people, the people in the film have changed relative to each other. And each of them was seven, each of them was 14. It's a very big job to edit the film, a pretty big job to kind of give it parameters. If you don't give it parameters, then I think you're dead in the water. So I would never go out and visit someone who died during it. I mean, in this case, we knew she had died, you know, when we were about three years into this last uh, step. But there's never any question that we would go and film the whole family or do something. We, we, we got a little bit of funeral and a little bit of something, but only tiny bits. Otherwise, then the, in a sense, the whole purpose of it disappears. If you start mixing up years or mixing up ages or, or whatever, then it becomes very difficult to handle and very difficult to put into whatever this is about two, two, two and a bit hours mm. put them all together. That you've got to keep control of it, otherwise then it'll just run away with you. When you sit down for an interview, how long do you sit down with them for? Well, it depends on the circumstances. It depends on how much I think they've got to tell me, how many subjects I want to deal with, and whether or not sometimes it's better to set them off with other people. In this instance, when I was interviewing Nick, we knew he was very ill. And, I mean, he's still alive, thank God, but he is very, very ill. And we had to travel 
you know, to see him and uh, you know, uh, last minute notice and in a way so we could get an interview with him so you know we could so he wouldn't pass away it was a question of weeks really and all that um, and so I only spent two and a half hours with him but with other people others sometimes I do two days with it it depends on who they are I mean I think the, the one who's usually the longest or the two that are usually the longest are Neil and uh, Tony Nonetheless, I do want to try and keep some balance so everybody who's in it has some decent amount of exposure and isn't just the whole series isn't just swamped by the five or six people who happen to be articulate. Um, one of the gifts, I think, I think you'd agree um, from your uh, participants in the series was um, Jackie, who was particularly feisty. In he, she has been feisty in a couple of installments and her accusation that I don't know if you'd agree with my summation of what her accusation was but or even indeed if it was an accusation but that your line of questioning had reflected a gender bias especially in the early stages of the project do you think she was right no not at all I mean all the girls are right in saying that definitely I was as much to blame for the the, the general sexist um, preference, and, and again, that women, men were more important than women. That was certainly true in the English culture uh, for a, for quite a long time, and it began to even out. And so, obviously, we didn't choose enough. For God's sake, we didn't choose enough women. We only two chose four women, and we had, you know, ten men. So that was an imbalance from the very beginning. And by doing that, then I gave more of the more of the, the show to men than to women. Um, but as life changed, it and women became important, and women all these women had jobs and things like that, and families or breakups. You know, and I spent more attention on them because, in some ways, you know, the the, the change of women in society is one of the is one of the most important change, social changes probably in any of the cultures I've been dealing with. And so, you know, I had to pay attention to that and give more, um, you know, give, give more space to that. So women had, they didn't have jobs so much at the beginning, interesting jobs, because it was hard for women to get interesting jobs, frankly. So there's less to talk about. So as their lives became freer and women got, got treated with more respect over the years, and so I did. I kind of followed, not even consciously, although that's not true in my case, because most of the movies I've made have been about women and women's achievements. But, um, you know, women became more important in society as the series grew up, and so... You know, I wanted to spend more time and I could talk about more things with them because they had more to talk about by the time they were 28 or 35. They had many more options. You've done, as you mentioned, many fiction films. You've been the head of your guild in America, the head of the um, Directors Guild. Uh, you've, you've reached the pinnacle of your career. Where do you put the 7-Up series, uh, you know, in, in, in the sort of pyramid of what you've achieved? I think at the top, because I, I can't believe that anybody else 
in the history of the world will ever do this because I spent 55 years or something doing it. I decided it was never going to be what it said it was going to be. It was just going to be a one-off film looking at the English social um, so, so social status in 1964, you know, when women were nothing and, uh, and most people who didn't have a good education had no chance of a good job. That kind of class imprisonment that some people went through I got in at the beginning of that, and I got in very young, and so I was able to cover a lot of ground, and also Granada. I mean, the point was that it was only ever going to be one film. I mean, this is a kind of unbelievable story, frankly. The first one caused a fantastic reaction. In some ways, and it coincided with the Labour government, in a sense, coming in and being much more effective than it had been before. So politics was, you know, clearly class-ridden. But uh, I never had the idea to do it again. It wasn't until five years after the first one had come out and created a stir in British television. The, the head of Granada at the time, Dennis Foreman, came to sit with me in the Granada canteen in Manchester and said, have you ever thought about going back and visiting these children? And I said, ah, um, no, I haven't, but what a great idea. So, you know, as soon as I went back to see, see them, I did one day's filming and I rang him up and said, it's not my ambition to spend my working life in London or Granada or all that, but we should keep doing this. And I guarantee that if you, you commit to doing this as many seven years as you've got people, then I guarantee I will come back and do it because I went off to live in America soon after that because I wanted to do movies. So we didn't even realize what we'd done when we did it, if you know what I mean. Had we realized what we had created when we did it, we wouldn't have thought twice about going back because the first one was much more sloppy. I mean, I probably interviewed myself and Gordon McDougall, who was the other researcher, as it were. I mean, we probably interviewed, you know, 50, 60 kids, and, and I think we filmed about 23. But it wasn't until the second one that we began then to cut it all down. And I think we just really did choose our 14 for, for 14 up. And that a lot of people between 7 and 14 dropped out or were removed, if you know what I mean. If mm. they weren't very interesting, then we decided not to move on with them. So it went from being a one-off into being a series, you know, after the first one. So it's a kind of weird birth it had. And if you're not around for the next one, I hate to be blunt, but it is getting to that point, isn't it? I mean, if what happens to the yeah, series? I'm 78 now. I mean, God, in, in, in my, seriously, my mind is going. As you can see, I lose words and lose uh, continuity sometimes. But I, I can't imagine I'd be in health to do this at 85. So I don't know. I mean, it depends. It won't be my decision. I would obviously support it, obviously, if someone else wanted to do it, if, if Claire was still alive, but she's no chicken either, or, or whatever, or whether they'd want to do it without the, the, the team, as it were. I mean, the fact that I kept going back was, I think, a, a big 
a big comfort to them and a big impetus to them to do it too. So it wasn't a piece of television that was going to kind of bounce around and be one thing one time, another thing another time. Yes, the the participants had a loyalty to you in a way, yes. Yes, they did, and and a respect for me, I suppose. So it's hard to say. I mean, the fact that I always came back encouraged them to always come back, but you got the sense of a family. Well, now, if for any reason I passed away or went balmy or just got tired of it all, I don't know whether they would come back either. Some of them may not, some of them may. They've always had the idea that this is a family. They call themselves a family. So if that breaks up, it can only really be destroyed, the family, if if I don't show up, if you know what I mean. But it could be persuaded that if it's people who've been working on the program who take over, then maybe people will feel more likely to want to keep going after I'm gone. But we can't, you know, we... None of us thought thought this was going to be the last one. I sort of did because, you know, I thought my health was going a bit and it probably wouldn't last long. And so I wanted to cover as much as I could, knowing I might not speak to them again. And also, if a lot of people die in it, it's a question whether that's... People want to watch that, I don't know. But anyway, it's wide open at the moment. No one said they wouldn't do it. I haven't said I wouldn't do it. As I said, I have a health problem which might put me out of it. So um, it hasn't really come up. But it's it's always a bit difficult to get them to come back anyway. I mean, I always have to, you know, some of them take a lot of work to, 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 to show up and do it. And then they usually show up because everybody else has showed up. I mean, when Susie didn't show up, this time, and I tried very hard to get her to come back. You know, then she rang me after the sh- show went out and said I should have done it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, but she should have done it. It was ludicrous because she's very an interesting character because um, she's the only non-working class woman in the, fi- in the, in the thing, but uh, she clearly resented that she um, was annoyed with herself for not doing it. Cold comfort for you, I guess. But look, it's a great, it's a great, the 63 up is, is certainly a, a great installment. And if it is the last, I hope it's not. Yeah. I think yeah. there's a lot of wisdom that's emerged from it. Yeah. And, and it is unique. And if it can go on, it'll become even more unique, you know, even if I'm not all, a couple more people pass away. But as long as it doesn't become a whole, li- a whole sort of, list of funerals and things like that you know it it should go on because it's endlessly interesting michael apted it's been a pleasure and i do wish you all the best and and here's hoping we do get to uh, a 70 up in uh, yeah. another seven years it would be nice wouldn't it, it has a, a better kind of sense of completion indeed numerically but look it would be absolutely sublime it would be much more than nice it would be fantastic um yeah. and very interesting. Well, let's cross our fingers and hope we can do another one. Eh? Be positive. Crossing about fingers it. and toes. Fingers and toes. Well, thank you for some good questioning. You're most welcome. Thank you very much, Michael Apted, for joining me on the screen show. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Life is what happens while you're waiting for something else. I don't think life is there to be regretted. You've got to make the most of it while you've got it. That's how you become the person you are. It's a picture of how any person, how they change. Give me a child until he is seven, and I will give you the man.
really one of my favourite conversations of 2019. Just a pleasure to get the opportunity to speak to Michael Apted about uh, what I think is a really significant piece of work. 63 Up, of course, is still available to watch on SBS On Demand and you can find the previous instalments around the place as well uh, if you haven't seen them yet. I highly recommend the Up series. This might be RN Summer, but it is time on this special RN Summer edition of The Screen Show to travel to the frosty far north of the globe, that is, as we revisit a conversation about Arctic noir that uh, me and our TV expert Lauren Carroll-Harris had with Professor Sue Turnbull, who at the time had recently returned from a research trip to Iceland uh, when we spoke to her. That was back in August she was investigating the value of the television crime drama series to the creative industries. And one of her case studies was the Icelandic television crime drama Trapped, a global phenomenon that has proved the catalyst for pushing the Icelandic film and television industry into more activity. She even visited the house of the protagonist, the stoic police chief, Andri, in that series. I really enjoyed this conversation. Let's hear it again in full now, starting with a clip from Trapped Season 2. There's a language warning, uh, some strong language in the clip, and then Lauren Carroll Harris will lead us in to this conversation. Did you hear about this politician who's just been burnt? Or didn't Viking could just tell you? Well, she's the one who said yes to all this. So there are going to be police around here asking lots of questions, and I'm not taking any risks. Do you understand me? What were you saying to Wigginger? Nothing. I'm not playing a fucking game. If I see you with him again, I'll tell your brother-in-law all about your special relationship with Wigginger. Do you want that? Yeah, that was from the second season of the drama Trapped from Iceland. It airs here on SBS On Demand. But beyond Iceland, Scandinavian crime has been having a real moment for a while now. Shows like The Bridge, The Killing, The Eagle are really tapping that zeitgeisty space of local shows with a real international resonance. And the genre, you know, is is really going some interesting places. So with us today is senior professor Sue Turnbull from the University of Wollongong. Sue has just returned from a research trip to Iceland, researching its exploding TV industry and what she calls Arctic Noir. Hi there, Sue. Hey, Sue. Hello there. <laughs> Sue, I'm imagining you on this investigative trip to <laughs> Iceland, you know, driving around this icy landscape. Tell us about what you were doing there and what you discovered and, and where exactly did you go? Well, I've been studying the transnational career of television crime dramas for a little while now and Trapped was one of my case studies. So that took me to Reykjavik. In fact, this was the third time that I'd been to this city, the the capital of Iceland in the south. And the first time that I'd been in midsummer, I happened to be there for June the 21st, which is, of course, 
the longest day. So far from Iceland being a kind of Arctic um, wasteland of people shivering, in fact, it was very funny because I arrived there and the minute the temperature goes above 10 degrees, Icelandic people take their clothes off and they're in, <laughs> and they're in their shorts and I'm walking along the streets in Reykjavik, you know, in my icewear and my cashmere um, scarves and there are people in sundresses and Birkenstock sandals. I'm and, into that. <laughs> and you could instantly tell who were the tourists because they were rugged up and who were the Icelandic people because they were definitely unclothed in one form or another. And I just got a message from one of my Icelandic friends saying that they were so excited. They just hit 25 degrees this week. So I'm afraid global warming is at work in yeah. Iceland. It's right. a bit like Australians though. It hits 15 degrees and we pull out the puffer jackets. And Anyway. Yeah. When I understand you were following in the footsteps of Andrew. Well, I was. The Icelandic tourist um, board has really latched on to film and television tourism. And I found on the web um, a, a wonderful brochure which was Follow in Andre's Footsteps. So this is the central character in Trapped. And you're invited to go round Iceland on the advice of the actor who plays this character, visiting various um, places, many of which don't actually appear in the TV series. They just want you to go there. At which point you have to realise that the, the, the economy of Iceland, 10% of the gross national project, um, uh, uh, profit is now actually derived from tourism. This is very interesting to me because, you know, a show like Traps is itself very concerned with Iceland's economy post the GFC. What is this relationship between the screen industry there and tourism? Well, it, it's almost like the two are in an incredible tension because since 2008 and the economy collapsed and, and Iceland was in a terrible situation, from 2012 onwards, tourism has just continued to increase. And so many films and so many TV shows have actually been shot in Iceland. And um, this, of course, has exhibited the country and the landscape to people all over the world who are intrigued and are traveling there. And then, of course, you've got this very fragile landscape. So when you hire a car in Iceland, there are two things you are told. One, you drive with your headlights on all the time which seems odd when it's 24 hours of sunlight. Secondly, you never drive off the road. You're huh. not supposed to get ever... And the road around Iceland is one lane in either direction. So there are not many options. How big is, how big is Iceland? Like, what, what sort of t terrain are we talking about? Well, it's smaller than New South Wales. It's, okay. And it's, it's smaller than Great Britain. And the economy? How big is the economy? Like, what are we talking... Um, Oh, I'm not so good on those actual figures. But in, in terms, terms of population... Oh, well, in terms you know. of population, it is that you have 340,000 people um, on the island as a whole. So it's really, um, you know, I'm living in Wollongong. It's the size of the population of Wollongong. So it's punching above its weight. In a country that is producing television and films that are travelling the world. And, of course, this is salutary for the Australian film and television industry because it, it also echoes the success of the day. Danish um, television industry when DR, the Danish national broadcaster, started producing shows like The Killing and The Bridge, which became globally successful and have really put that small country on the map. So Trapped was the breakthrough for Iceland. And since then, more TV, more crime TV series have been produced since Trapped than were produced in the, in the 10 years before it was produced. 
And with that 340,000 Icelandic population, there's a visiting tourist population of 2.3 million a year. I think this is amazing because this is a real trend, isn't it? In TV storytelling, landscape is the star and TV is the advertisement for the country. And there's some similarities with Australia there, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And, you you know, the, the recent show Mystery Road actually came with... with uh, critical reports and, and critical awareness around travel to the Kimberley, you know, exploring the parts of Australia that you would not otherwise have seen. So um, Outback Noir, which is what I've been calling um, shows like Mystery Road, are, are again um, doing the same thing as, as Iceland did. And, of course, the other show in Australia that, that has tried to capitalise on that tourism was Secret City, set in Canberra, yes. which had had great excitement from the Canberra um, tourist industry. But also... But was that for internal tourists? Who was that aimed at? What was the... Well, for anybody who was passing through Australia, I mean, okay. Australia has a pretty, you know, pretty good tourist industry. And Canberra, of course, has all those museums and national galleries yes. and all the rest of it. But what you're aiming for with these shows, it must be said, is a global niche market. And it's a global niche market that is interested in the geopolitics of these shows, that is interested in the landscape of these shows and has the capacity to travel. Mm, the geopolitics of Scandinavia is... A, a great point. You know, Trapped has a lot to say about foreign visitors to Iceland. It also is very obsessed with the impact of the growing economy on that fragile Arctic landscape. Tell me more about the geopolitics of these shows. Well, since um, The Killing and the Bridge, the DR kind of storytelling strategy was always to have some kind of a storyline that took on larger political issues along with a domestic or family storyline. And this is exactly what Trapped does. You've got this much larger issue in, in both the first and the second series where in the first series we've got something about trade and wanting to set up a big trade route and the impact this will have on this small town of Siglafjörður and you've got the mayor and the and the the executives of the town very keen because they can see money in this and then you've got the family story including the story of Andre the policeman himself and his domestic troubles so these shows manage to showcase larger issues which can be in fact, global issues to do with migrants, to do with overseas workers, to do with pollution, to do with environmental issues, whilst also bringing them home in terms of recognising that what families are going through and the tensions that families are going through are, in fact, universal issues. Right. So there's this constant movement between the big picture and people's lives in their homes. Iceland is also one of the safest countries on earth. Only two murders happen there a year. And the culture is enthralled to crime stories. What is that paradox <laughs> about, do you think? Well, you've got to see that, that they have adopted the genre. And remember, of course, Iceland has a fantastic history of storytelling about um, the, the sagas and the Eddas that were a great deal about revenge and family. And a lot of people got murdered and offed in the sagas. <laughs> you know, there's a Viking past there. But you've also got a... a, a a population that reads a great deal. And one of the Icelandic crime writers who had a series adapted for television was telling me that he was influenced not only by American crime fiction, and remember the Americans have had a base in Iceland for a very long time, um, 
And so they took their crime fiction with them. But he was also influenced by Swedish um, crime fiction from the 70s and American crime fiction. So you have to see that the genre has traveled and Icelandic writers and screenwriters are making shows to fit into that genre because they know that is a genre that will have sales, that will travel, that may be translated. I mean, not many Icelandic crime writers are translated. There are many more than are actually translated, but they're a very interesting interesting bunch. So a long history of, of literary culture and yet not a, a long history of TV. I understand that that happened pretty recently, the introduction of TV. Well, it has. And uh, again, my Icelandic crime writer friend was, was kind of keen to impress upon me that, that Iceland has been rather snobbish, you know, almost a little bit French about the protection of its language and its culture. And TV was seen as this potential for foreign influence. And indeed, when they finally got TV, which was not until 1966, though the Americans, um, when they arrived in 1951 in their base, um, established a, a, an English-speaking TV station, but not many people were able to get it. The first Icelandic um, public service broadcaster was set up in 1966, but they only had um, television on Wednesdays and Fridays for quite, <laughs> for quite a long time. And then until 1987, there was no television on Thursdays, which was when Icelandic people were expected to go and do something more useful. And indeed... <laughs> I started to giggle because I was told by uh, my Icelandic friends that many of them a certain generation are convinced they were conceived on a Thursday because that was the only other thing that their family could think of to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, beyond Iceland, I, you know, I do feel that the Scandinoir genre has lifted and, and innovated crime TV. What do you think is happening with this genre and how do other shows that you're watching, you know, global shows, reference Scandinoir now? What's the global creative effect of this genre? Oh, it's been enormous. Uh, you know, the the killing and the bridge really um, galvanized television production, quality television production. I mean, on the American side, of course, we had The Wire, we had The Sopranos, we had, you know, the HBO genre, if you like, appearing. And then the killing and the bridge hit back with these extraordinary landscapes with these extraordinary domestic stories and and this new insight into the politics of Europe and and a show like Hinterland then appears in Wales um, which, and it's the first actual television crime drama that is made both in Welsh and in English every scene was shot twice so it was the first television crime drama produced for a Welsh audience in Wales and if you look at Hinterland you can see all those Scandi noir elements appearing um, Australia has actually mimicked it in it, uh, several um, Scandinois. The Kettering incident looks very like and follows the same themes about logging and environmentalism, you know, in a small community, Kettering in Tasmania. Has a You're similar colour palette as well to a lot of Arctic, yes. Arctic I mean, Lauren and I are both fans of the Kettering incident and yes. there is a sense of it being set in Tasmania and so forth, having kind of aesthetic similarities. Absolutely, of, yeah, and if you one. if you look at Jordscott, um, the the Swedish series, ex it looks the same. It is about the same themes. So these series are having spin-off effect because with their popularity, I think. I think the major people who are being influenced are in fact screenwriters and screen producers who are going, I want to tell a story from my part of the world that uses my landscape and my sort of um, 
political issues and showcase those. And I know that this travels. I'm going to do the same thing. How much, Sue, how much has uh, government influence and support played? What, what sort of role has that played in, you know, making Scandi Noir happen? Or has it been a mainly sort of private, uh, you know, pay TV phenomenon? Look, it's it started with the public service broadcasters, but now the big guys are moving in. I spoke to one director in Iceland whose new production, which will appear next year, The Valhalla Murders, is the first time that they're dealing with a serial killer. It's got an urban setting and Netflix is co-producing. So they've they've started to look outside because they, they realise they can't produce that quality production for an audience of, of you know, 340,000. They've got to look larger than that and they've got to bring the big guys mm. in. So it is expanding. But at the same time, people like Netflix and Amazon are going to Europe and they're going there saying, we want your stories. We actually want local stories. So we've moved completely away from that notion that... You know, you have to make something that looks like an American drama that will yeah. travel. We're now going, we want the local, we want the language, we want the culture, and we want the storylines because our audience understands the genre and the genre will be the narrative frame through which they can come at this story. It's, it's certainly fascinating and, and there are plenty of examples, it sounds like, that um, are of inspiration to Australian screen makers as well. Sue Turnbull, it's been great catching up with you and uh and lauren of course um there are so many other you know um, examples of scandinois available to watch at the moment on various um platforms sbs on demand has a few yeah they've got midnight sun the lawyer the bridge gray zone we'll, we'll keep tabs on all of this yeah yeah all right well sue thanks as always thank you so much sue turnbull is senior professor of communication and media at the university of wollongong and lauren carroll harris thanks for guiding us through the terrain of <laughs> Thanks, uh, Jason. the not-so-dark terrain, it turns out, during summer of uh, Arctic Noir. That was Professor Sue Turnbull from the University of Wollongong speaking to Lauren Carroll-Harris and myself earlier in the year about her trip to Iceland researching Arctic Noir. You're listening to a special RN summer edition of The Screen Show. I'm Jason DeRosso. James from the soundtrack to one of my favourite French films of recent times, Let the Sunshine In, a contemporary drama directed by Claire Denis, starring Juliette Binoche, about a single middle-aged woman, an artist, looking for love in Paris. Uh, a story that comes so close to the authentic truth, I think, of what it's like to be lost in your life, that it approaches an absurd, even comic tone at times. Some critics called this a romantic comedy. I'm not so convinced that it is, but it plays out as a series of encounters that seem to pivot on an emotional knife edge 
requiring changes of tone mid-scene as Benoche's character meets various lovers who range from an arrogant but charismatic older banker to a moody young actor and even a fortune teller played in the final stretch of the film by a surprising Gerard Depardieu. Do not look away from the film or turn it off if you're seeing it on streaming. I know someone who saw it in the cinema and left as the final credits rolled. It really is a film that you have to watch until the very last frame because things happen right up until then. Anyway, one of the most revealing encounters happens with another woman, actually, an old friend Benoche's character has a conversation with in a restaurant bathroom. On one level, this is a film about a frustrated and unhappy woman, but it's told with such a generosity and curiosity towards her that it transforms into a deep and very affirming film about desire, love, and hate. I caught up with Juliette Binoche in Paris at the beginning of 2019 when I was there as guest of the French government's annual foreign press tour. Let's hear a clip from the film and then my interview with La Binoche. Je suis rentrée avec lui et j'ai pensé que j'étais très heureuse, que j'avais beaucoup de chance, que ma vie était extraordinaire. Et puis alors, le lendemain, ben, j'ai pensé le contraire. Quoi. Je t'admire. Tu m'enchantes, mais j'ai une femme extraordinaire. Je me disais que c'était un salaud. Et je vous sais. Ah, bonjour. Comment allez-vous Vous allez bien Non. <rire> Écoute, j'arrive à l'instant du Brésil et j'avais une envie folle de te niquer. Tiens, seul type Je regrette, on n'aurait pas dû coucher ensemble. J'ai l'impression qu'on a tout gâché. On se voit plus. Du tout. I love this film and I love the performance is beautiful. I read that um, Claire Denis, for Claire Denis it was a, it was a very, uh, the parameters were quite tight on the film. It needed to be done reasonably quickly. Um, what did that mean for you making it and your performance? Was there necessarily a lot of improvisation, a lot of input into the script or? No, there was no improvisation at all. And because it was a script written by an author, uh, Christine Angot, that was it uh, was her first script and very well respected uh, writer. I, I didn't want to change uh, coma. So I, I really uh, learn every kind of, when there's a little hesitation, whatever, it was all written. That's really fascinating because there's a beautiful scene inside a bathroom where your character's talking to an old friend, I think. And my jaw was on the floor with this because I think in your performance you go from tears to to laughter within the same thing and it was such a delicate balance um were you hitting points there or was there an element of being able to be spontaneous within the performance no no there was a choice uh well claire doesn't rehearse uh before so we go into the shot but of course i rehearse <laughs> i had to uh, so I, uh, I knew where i wanted to break and where i wanted to laugh and but also there's um it's being available for the scene. You never know really how it's going to happen. So you hope that the end emotion is going to come in at the right time, but you prepare for it. So uh, this emotions are, you know, of course there's a technique, but uh, also there's a little magic in it. It comes when it wants to come, but being a available is a work. Yeah. How did Claire Denis explain the character and her sort of expectations of the character on screen to you? Because it's such a it's such a fascinating character and a film, in fact, that sort of hovers between 
very intense drama and there are some lighter sort of bittersweet moments as well. What, what was her brief to you? How did she describe the project? You know, most of the time we don't talk that much with directors about, I mean, uh, that's what happened to me on this film particularly is that we talked about the clothes very much, you know, and she wanted to have the the boots the and the short um, skirt. skirt. Um, and that she was very keen on being specific about the way she dresses and the hair, the style of the of hers, uh, because it was going to give a style to the film. But in terms of um, acting, you know, and emotions, uh, that she really let me do uh, what I felt doing, really. And but also, it's not there were a lot of stage directions in the script. It was mainly the 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 dialogue, uh, but it was all there in a way. So uh, there was not a lot to explain, you know. Mm. Yeah, explaining in a film is is killing most of the time. The the magic of it, you don't need it unless you have specific questions about, you know. Uh, but there, you know, I'm Parisian. Um, I'm not playing uh, somebody I don't I don't know somehow. <laughs> You're also playing a painter, and of course, this was one of your first loves artistically, if I'm not mistaken. I've read that you, as a child, you were very interested in painting, mm -hmm. and uh, you played a painter of before, of course. But what's the significance, do you think, of the fact that your character is a painter? Well, actually, I asked Claire to, uh, if it was possible to see her painting, because I was a little worried we were really like into the love fragments of her life and not mm, having a little bit of reality uh, of her life. So she accepted, and so we kind of improvised something uh, like that. But it was, uh, well, uh, you don't see me really painting the film. No, it's not like uh, another film I did, uh, Words and Pictures, where you really see me painting. Um, but it was part of uh, who she is. She's an artist, and like the banker at the beginning, he's a little jealous. He'd like to be, you know, to he's c he, l he likes being close to an artist. At the same time, he's despising her totally. <laughs> That's the contradiction of, uh, of some of the scenes. You know, it's uh, you're always surprised in a way in uh, in uh, what's going to happen because that's why it's funny. I don't know if you laugh during the, the, the film. I mean, you can cry and laugh both. Uh, I cried more than I laughed, and, <laughs> and I love this film, but, but it's funny. I was a little surprised to see so many colleagues really okay. talk about the, the laughter of it, and, and I found it very deep, and, um, and not often laugh out loud funny, I must, I must confess. Did you find it strange that people laugh so much? Well, the first screening, it was in Cannes, and a lot of people laughed, and I, I enjoyed that. I felt like, oh, good, they're, they're laughing. And then the second screen, I, saw, so I cried a lot. <laughs> and uh, there were laughs, though, uh, but um, I think it depends how you're feeling inside when you watch the film. Uh, and it, it, it has different colors, but definitely uh, uh, the, she's in desperation, but she's looking for that love, that sharing, that place where you feel safe and, and there's a softness in it or something true you can share and, and not this manipulation or the despising sides of uh, relationships. But uh, it takes a while. Uh, sometimes to uh, find the right person to be with and and we learn through a lot of uh, crashes <laughs> in relationships <laughs>
Um, is it different working with a female director sometimes? Can you Do you divide across in your mind? Do you think of uh, male and female directors no, differently? I don't no. think that way. Uh, I'm with somebody I feel close to or not, not close to. And uh, thankfully, I had a lot of directors I felt very close to. Um, but uh, Claire is, um, was a, such a... Uh, treasure <laughs> to work with her. She's uh, she's very attentive and and really loving uh, human beings. I feel very respected by her. The way of looking and and searching the you know the the shot she's going to do. Uh, Are there many takes? Um, not that I remember. Not specially, but. Uh, if I wanted to do another one, if she wanted to do another one, we would do another one. But on the second, f I, I just finished a film with her in November, and um, suddenly I felt like we were not doing a lot of takes. But on Sunshine, I can't remember. I never thought of it, actually. I just felt that we stopped when it was the right moment. Was it a draining role to play? Because, of course, your character throughout the film is saying, I'm tired, I'm tired. And you really believe it. I mean, it's a wonderful performance. You feel this this mm. sort of heaviness in mm. her life, this sadness, really, mm. um, despite the levity in the film. W was it draining for you? Uh, well, I was shooting. It was long, intense days of shooting, and we only shot five weeks. So, uh, and in very cold with the, with my... Uh, mini skirt mini or the, skirt. the short skirt. Yeah, yeah, short skirt. So I was I was uh, every day working every day like that so intensively it was uh, it was tough yeah. What was it about the short skirt by the way? Why did Claire Denis have a specific idea about the the boots and the skirt and what was it that how did For she explain her, it? It was the Parisian. I don't know. Don't ask me why, but she wanted to have. Yeah, I think she wanted to have a beautiful woman, sexy and not afraid of of wa walking towards herself in a way. It's like a Joan of Arc <laughs> kind of uh, looking for, you know, believing in love and, and thinking she's going to find a way to liberate herself somehow from the loneliness. And, and, you know, she's having a child by herself and it's a way of, uh, yeah, she wants to find somebody she can trust and she can share her life with. It's as simple as that, but it's a difficult journey sometimes. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. Thank Binoche. you very much. Juliet Binoche speaking to me about her role in Claire Denis' film, Let the Sunshine In. Check it out if you haven't seen it. It's wonderful. Uh, it is around on demand. Well, a little summer treat before we go in this special RN summer edition of The Screen Show. Our best advice segment is where actors, directors, all kinds of creatives really from the film and TV industry tell us about the best advice they've ever received. And today we share Australian actor Ewan Leslie's with you. Philip Seymour Hoffman was always, I mean, look, his thing to me was always just be bold. I mean, in terms of when I was doing theatre with him, he was like, and actually Jane Campion kind of said a similar thing where they kind of said, try not to make too much of a plan. Like just go out on stage or be in front of camera and just try and be in the moment as best as you can and try and get rid of that voice in the back of your head that sort of, uh, you know, that's analysing or judging what you're doing as you're doing it. And that's that's all you're trying to do is just get rid of that voice that's kind of, you know, scanning your every choice, I suppose. I mean, he, Philip was always big on just go out there, be in the moment and be bold, make bold decisions 
and and be brave. And I mean, that was a really wonderful experience doing that play. I did a play that he directed because I got to do it with um, Hugo Weaving was in it and Martin Chokas and uh, Susie Porter and this great group of actors. But I, I had very little to say, but I, I was on stage a lot of the time. So I basically just spent five weeks watching Philip Seymour Hoffman direct these amazing these amazing actors. And Jane Campion on um, Top of the Lake, look, her big thing as well was have some secrets. And it's something that I tr- try and keep reminding myself is that she went, you know, you can actually sit back and don't, don't let me always know what you're thinking. Like you don't have to kind of signpost every decision that, that you've made or that you're making. And sometimes that's the hardest thing because you want to show, oh, in this moment I'm thinking this and I want the audience to think that. So you're trying to kind of, you know, get your story across to the audience. Whereas I think what she was saying is it's sometimes far more interesting to me if I have no idea what you're thinking, you know, if you're actually sitting back and that allows – you know, she was like, you know, sometimes when you see an actor who's really giving a performance and it actually kind of, as a, as an audience member, as a viewer makes, you sort of want to step back from it. You sort of go, oh God, what do they want? Whereas she was like, if you don't do that and you sit back, you kind of bring, you can draw the audience in and bring us to you. And I, I should say, that's not something that I always, you know, I, I'm constantly trying to remind myself that because it's not something that I'm always doing. Like sometimes even still, I get to the end of scenes and go oh god I didn't follow that advice I did exactly you know what what she said not to do but that that's something that I'm trying to remember more and more I suppose actor Ewan Leslie sharing his best advice and you'll know Ewan of course from a number of shows and uh, films he's been working so much in recent years The Cry Sweet Country Rake uh, the ABC Mystery The Gloaming as well Well, that's all we have time for on this RN Summer Edition of The Screen Show. I'm Jason DeRosso. You also heard, of course, from our TV critic, Lauren Carroll-Harris. Thanks for joining us to hear some of the highlights from our past 12 months. We'll be back with more next week. Mm